I am Roy Malloy, and you are listening to The Dawn of Crime, a podcast that I have handcrafted from the fabrics of time that I've knitted together loosely with my own interpretations and commentaries. The podcast that I have been working on uh, in and out of lockdown, which is sadly becoming a little bit too familiar and repetitive, but here I am yet again in another lockdown. Um, and I'm actually joined by somebody I met quite recently, but I believe I've probably interacted with, at least read some of the material of for some time, a lady named Deb Robinson, who is one of the uh, the head historians and curators of the old Geelong uh, Jail Museum. And that's jail spelt the old school way, the J, sorry, G, <laughs> I did it wrong, G-A-O-L. <laughs> read it as gold. But, yes. Um, and Deb yes. is uh, astoundingly good at research, but there's two parts to research. I always find there's the research where you have to find the information, but then there's the research where you can remember that stuff. <laughs> and Deb's mind is godless. <laughs> good at all of those things. Uh, well, Deb. Hi, how are you going? <laughs> and you're in the room. Deb, here with us now. Uh, it's good to have you on this, uh, on this podcast that I've been uh, trying to keep up with as best I can. But uh, here we are in another episode. And this episode is going to be talking about uh, one of the, the hard, two of the hardest, nut crack, the hardest nuts I've cracked. Um, you're going to be on two episodes of the Dawn <laughs> and the next one. Both, uh, De- Deborah was able to crack open two of the most difficult nuts I've ever tried to research. This first one we're going to be talking about is the girlfriend and probably the first love of Squizzy Taylor a woman who made Little Lonsdale Street probably about as infamous as uh, anybody else in that time and place. She was a very colourful character, not afraid of standing out in the crowd. Dolly Gray. Now, in my research and in the preparation for the book Squeeze Biography, I was looking for Dolly for years. And when I say looking for Dolly, it's not that she doesn't stand out in the newspapers. Uh, what was your experience with finding Dolly early in your research career, Deb? Yeah, it, it, it's similar. And it's like it's like a lot of these ones, you know, dealing with ones that are on the, the wrong side of the law. Uh, of course, they don't always tell, you know, newspapers or the public sources that we use then to find them later on uh, the exact truth sometimes. So it becomes extremely difficult to find them, especially when they're using a variety of names as well. So it's a matter of trying to track down each of those individual names, not just one person. When do you believe you, what was it that made you think, I don't believe her real name is Dolly Gray? Um, I think I always knew that Dolly was, was an alias. Um, and it was one of those things that, you know, sometimes you get something in your head and it's, I know what I'm like, if, if I have a particular line that there's just something that's really frustrating me and I just really, really, really want to find this bit, um, I'll move heaven, heaven and earth to try and, and try and find that name. And one of the things that I really wanted to find, because it seemed to be the one thing that was missing from a lot of Squizzy Taylor research was the marriage certificate. Um, so it was one of those things I really wanted to try and locate to try and confirm some of the details, not only for um, for Dolly, but also for Squizzy as well. Uh, so you know, I have a, a family history background. You go on. Oh, don't 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 reveal it too quickly. Don't reveal it too quickly. Yeah. Say, keep going. You have a family. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, so I've got a family history background. So I've been been researching family history for about thirty plus years now, um, and that's kind of where I learnt how to research. And one of the things I noticed, uh, 
that I do now and even even with um, the work that we do with um, with the museum and also our ghost tours and that at night uh, is when we're looking for a particular person and that the rest of the staff have decided that's my superpower now and that if there's a particular piece of information I really need to find, I tend to be able to hone in on it and I not only am able to find it, but I know that it's right. And then sometimes it's finding those secondary sources around it to make sure that it is what I think. And it's something that I've always done, even with my, my family history research. But one of the things that we do as researchers is, um, is that we need to, to research from what we actually know and what we can prove, then back into the unknown. And it's sometimes that moving back into the unknown is, is a little difficult. You know, I had a case, um, which was my my family tree actually, which is my great grandfather on one particular site, and it took me twenty years to be able to definitively say where he went because he disappeared. Um, I had you know we had the story of, and it was around the end of World War One, so about nineteen fifteen. He it was when they had their last child, and then he disappeared, and I couldn't find him, and I knew he had to have gone to war. And then disappeared from that. But I just, it took me so long to find him. Like I said, it took 20 years. And eventually when I found him, um, he'd actually been, he did go to war and then he came home. He was sent home medically unfit because about six months prior, he was uh, sandwiched between the trucks of a train uh, and was actually in Bensdale Hospital for six months, flat on his back, completely paralysed. Um, and then he got out of hospital and enlisted and went to war as you do. Wow. So, yeah. So, and then when he came back, he had disappeared. And um, the reason I was trying to find him is because the kids all ended up in an orphanage um, because their mother had died of tuberculosis in a sanitarium up in Amherst, even though they were from Gippsland. She died in central Victoria in the sanitarium. So that's obviously where they'd sent her to get well. Uh, and she passed away. And it meant that the, the four kids actually went into, uh, into care. Uh, into the, the orphanages and they were actually separated. So there was three girls and one boy um, and they were actually separated. They actually never saw their brother again. And I was able to find for my great aunt who was a hundred years old at the time, uh, was able to tell her definitively that her brother had actually died during World War II at the Changi camp. Um, but it took me a lot of years to find that. But their father, I actually found, he actually died in the influenza epidemic. So he never went home. And I don't know whether that was something to do with, we know there was a lot of, um, uh, especially people that came home that were medically unfit and or didn't participate in the war. We know that in World War One there was a lot of patriotism and there was a lot of ill feeling sometimes towards people that weren't able to serve. Uh, and he ended up way up the top uh, on Northern Victoria somewhere, um, Inglewood, I think it was, he died. Uh, and he actually died in the influenza epidemic of 1919. So it ended up being a very, very sad story. Uh -huh. um, but one of the other things I did eventually find out, and I'm still looking for their births, I still can't find their births, um, but he was a product of a single mother in the 1880s. And I think that's why he was so secretive and why he struggled so much with having a family. Um, that's my thoughts anyway. So, um, yeah, so that was one of my brick walls that I had to, my personal brick walls that I had to find. But it's a similar sort of skill set that we do when we're looking for other things. Um, so it's, you know, and it's something that I now apply to all the research we do for, for whether it's for our tours, whether it's for a new display, uh, whether it's for one of my podcasts I'm doing. Um, I like to know all the ins and outs 
flats and and like the the last podcast for instance I just did which was um the murder at Cherry Tree uh, flat up near Ballarat um it's literally the reason it's fascinated me for four or five years is I read a newspaper article from the 1860s and what blew my mind was the fact that the journalist had been through the house and witnessed the scene uh before the police had basically secured the scene before the coroner was there before and this was a story where the man had murdered his wife and his two infant daughters with an axe and the bodies were still in place and everybody's walking through the crime scene and it's something that blows my mind because it's so different to how we look at things today but it was like the case where um, Fred Piggott used photography is it pardon is this the case where Fred Piggott uses photography for one of the first times a lot later one this particular case was 1864 so it was very very early uh, but it's not the first one. One of our, our guys was executed at Geelong Jail, a guy by the name of Owen McQueenie, was responsible for the Green Tent murder of Elizabeth Lowe uh, just outside of Meredith at a place called Green Tent um, in 1858. Uh, and it was a similar sort of thing. It, it was actually, you know, uh, putting the journalistic article in the newspapers, I think it was the Ballarat Star, with how that um, the journalists had tried to beat the police to the scene because they were coming from Ballarat and the police were coming up from Geelong. Uh, and they were trying to get to the scene so that they could actually walk through the scene and document it. And of course, this is a time before radios and and um, you know TV and all that sort of stuff. So the articles are really, really, really descriptive, um, which is what I love. <laughs> I actually love those little the little nuances that you find, especially in those really, really early ones. Now, the murder of Elizabeth Lowe, she was actually shot uh, shot through the eye. Uh, and fell face first into the fire where she was found by the Crown Lands Manager. Um, she had a two-month-old infant underneath her when she was found. She'd been feeding the baby at the fire and this guy walked in and shot her in the head to steal her and steal her jade earrings. And so just to draw that back to what, why the, I asked that question, is the um, Fred Piggott was, uh, one of the, he was one of the terrible ten, one of the first ever yes. uh, plainclothes yes. policemen um, who was allowed to not a beat, which is a strange thing to say but he was given permission to just find crooks as and where and one of the crooks he he was really into finding was squizzy taylor um yes now drawing this to what you just really hit the nail on the head is not just how hard it is to find people and, and in 1915 your great grandfather as you're talking about spot on yep. timing for what we're talking about now how hard it is to find him when he wasn't necessarily covering his tracks now when no someone like Dolly Gray who really wanted to cover her tracks, uh, we find very quickly how uh, easy it was. Uh, and there's a movie with um, Matt Damon called The Talented Mr. Ripley. Have you seen Yes. That? And he yes, I have. skillfully manipulates even much later what we talk in the 50s and 60s. There's just the lack of instant media. We take it for granted that if you're wanted by one police station in one place in the world, they all know you because there's an internet and we can send a photo instantly. <laughs> But for someone like Dolly Gray, who wanted and, at large, having an alias is a wonderful thing. Why the name Dolly Gray? Do you have any bearing on why? I don't know. No, I don't have anything on that. But I, I think the other thing to understand too is back in those days, nowadays, you know, we're very used to having to prove our identity, um, whether it's through licences, birth certificates, um, stuff like that, photo IDs, all this sort of stuff that we're surrounded with and is very normal, you know, passcodes, fingerprints, you know, now we're getting up to, you know, facial recognition. 
um, you know, you, you step back a hundred odd years and these guys were changing their names without any proof. They just started using a different name. Uh, and you know, there was no, there wasn't the proof of such as, as what that particular name was. So it was very easy to, okay, that name's now been tied up into that. So I'm not using that name anymore. I need to find another name so they don't actually, it takes a lot longer to connect. And even with looking at some of the rap sheets of these guys, you'll see all of their charges. And it's like, this one was under this name and this one was this name and this one was this name. And some of them were quite, um, quite uh, <laughs> creative with how they came up with their names. And yeah, I've got no idea where Dolly Gray came from. Let me play you this song. And because it is completely different to what her real name was. All right, let me play you this song. Tell me what you think of this. Now, when we get up to the chorus, I reckon you'll recognize it. Now, what, um, let's go to the all time Victorian question. What football? <laughs> That's the Collingwood. Sorry? Good old Collingwood. Ah, there you that, go. I'm a Geelong girl. So, uh, well, even the Geelong theme song is also World War One March associated. It's a march. And um, so Goodbye Dolly Gray Forever, that song was in such high rotation around the dance halls and even cafes where pianists would sit and play because there was no real pre-recorded records weren't really a thing. Um, it was in such high rotation that there were petitions to newspapers saying, please ban this in our suburb. Um, so for a, a good yes. girl to be called Dolly Gray, she was then a good time girl. Um, we we yes. come across <laughs> Dolly much earlier, but I couldn't find it. Now this brings me to the, the reason Deb is here in the first place and blew my mind because I, I just went to the Geelong Prison uh, Museum uh, to do two things, to, to meet Deb and to take some of my books, which are there on sale at the moment. And I got, yes. <laughs> we were just literally talking about every other crook who's ever set foot in that jail and Dolly Gray wasn't one of them. Quizzy Taylor wasn't one of them. And I just I said, no. you know, I've always, I've never been able to crack the nut of who Dolly Gray was. Now the, the closest I've gotten searching <laughs> one of her earliest um, appearances in newspapers, you really don't see Dolly Gray until she meets Squizzy Taylor. And no. are in Bendigo around the time of the Bendigo races, and I think off the top of my memory, it's 1912, and there's a printing press. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, ironically, this printing press has leased a property which was once where the city watch house had been. So that's the building, and Squizzy knows it pretty well because he's been in it. <laughs> and <laughs> A number of times. <laughs> yeah, and he knows that. Now, Bendigo is a place that Squizzy really grew up with. We think about Squizzy Taylor and Fitzroy, but... The Squizzy Taylor story is a very 
Bendigo's story. He goes to a lot of country yes. boys, and he's a very country boy. And he knows this building. He knows it very well. And he knows that now there is a safe inside it. They never quite pin Squizzy for it, but the, the safe is blown up. There's stuff everywhere. And we first hear about Dolly Gray at that time. And in those newspapers, only one of them that I ever found, there were dozens and dozens of newspapers really replicating the same stories, but one of them, the judge says, you were here once before, Miss Gray, and your last name was Haynes. And that's the closest I got. And I was, I got a fellow who I really admire called Chris McConville. And Dr. Chris, yep. I was instant to message him. Hey, hey, look what I found. I was beside myself. And uh, he, he hadn't come across that. So I felt pretty, pretty good about it. Now, that was a long time <laughs> ever since. And I, I have to say, I've trawled and trawled is, I can't really do justice to how hard I've looked for a way to prove. Oh, believe me, I know. Yeah, I reckon you would. <laughs> Could not prove that's not her real name. Now, if you go to Wikipedia, I've got to say also, Wikipedia is a place that I don't place a lot of stock in. Um, no. I've had a stalker called Sean Spencer, who um, is a very well-known um, editor on Wikipedia, but he's done two things. He's done everything in his power to reduce the Roy Malloy uh, Wikipedia page to little and he's also banned me from ever editing any Wikipedia page. Um, he's a oh, lovely. Followed my oh. and stalked me and did all the creepy things. For that reason, I went to the the um, the Squizzy Taylor Wikipedia page many times, and it says there they were never married. Squizzy and Dolly was. I'm not alone. No one has ever been able that I am aware of has really ever come across <laughs> wedding certificate possibly because the last name was Haynes. But even in, in finding that name, I then went straight to birth, deaths and marriages. And I trawled every Haynes that married anything that looked like a, a tailor, couldn't find it. Deb, how'd you do it? <laughs> I actually, I, look, I found it a couple of years ago, to be honest. So, and I can't remember exactly what I did, but I think one of the things that, one of the things that I like to do is I like to try and think outside the square a little bit. So especially when you come to like one of these, these blocks, um, so, and it was, th I think I'd been looking at that point, I'd been looking at everything with Squizzy from Squizzy, Squizzy's point of view. Um, and I think I started to look at Dolly and I started to look at the different names and I can't remember how I came across Charlotte Haynes, but I knew that that had come up, uh, that had come up throughout the research. So well, I started. The first part you found? Pardon? Charlotte was the first part of her name that you found? No, I think it was Haynes and I can't even remember how it came up. And do you know what? Because I think, um, now correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be completely wrong. Um, wasn't the the, mur the first murder Squizzy was accused of? Wasn't that the driver? Wasn't that Haynes? So it was, absolutely. Now that boy was the grandson of the first premier ever of Victoria. Fun. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I, I don't <laughs> believe, I did ask myself that question, but I haven't had a chance to look at it, but I don't believe they are related. No, believe? but I think that's possible because one of the things I was doing uh, back when I was looking at this, we were doing, um, I, I used to do murder tours around Melbourne. Uh, and one of the ones that we did, I used to do around Carlton and then I did one, which is sort of the more famous ones, which was sort of around Melbourne. Um, but I think at one point that we, we started, um, as myself and my, my cohort that we get up to trouble with, we used to do things like going around to the locations of where things are. So if we found an address in a newspaper article, we'd actually go to the location and have a look. 
and I know one of the ones we did, we actually traced, uh, was tracing to where today, where that had taken place. Um, so I have a feeling I was probably looking at Haynes from that point of view. Uh, but then something else came up and I'm a good one with Trove. Anyone who's ever looked at Trove know that you get sort of those two or three lines um, with to do with the search terms that you're looking at. Um, and I'm pretty good at flicking quickly through and going, oh, hang on, let's have a look at this. Um, and I think that's probably one of, one of what I did with how I found uh, found the Haynes name. Um, now, I know there was a number of, of different names that Dolly was using too. And I've probably, I'm just trying to flick through and find my notes quickly, but I can't find my notes. Uh, but I used to write things down um, and all that. So I'd have, okay, so there's these names that were, were under uh, that. And I think I just started looking and it might've been just like a, a Hail Mary. I have, have the birth deaths and marriages in, in a database on my, my hard drive. And I think it was just probably a Hail Mary that I went through. Hey, let's just look at all the names from her perspective rather than his perspective uh, and just see, because I don't think I was convinced he was actually married under, um, you know, Leslie Taylor either. And I think at that stage, I was trying to look outside the square a bit more with what name he may have used for the marriage if it existed. And I think that's probably one of the things it was one of those, those facts that everyone goes, were they actually married or not? Um, and it just, you know, one of those things that got in my head, like, let's have a look and see if I can find this marriage certificate. And lo and behold, I did. <laughs> one of the things that, I, that struck me about the marriage certificate is that they listed it at births, deaths and marriages um, and on the certificate as J-A-S Taylor. With, yes. Uh, I'm assuming that's shortened for um, Theodore um, or... Uh, JAS is usually James, um, which is not a name that I don't think... It's not one of the names Joseph, he ever used. Joseph is part of his name. Was it? Yeah, so, so Joseph is usually J-O-S. It's shortened. So, too, so that, it uh, could be that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, I have not stood it in front of me, so... <laughs> yeah, and look, so I, I, I think... I, in being mind blown at the Geelong Prison Museum, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't get out of there fast enough to get on my phone. <laughs> and I reckon I've spent the last uh, every waking hour since. And the journey on has been absolutely extraordinary. But I've also, I believe I've now found the family of Charlotte, uh, Eli sorry, Eliza Charlotte Haynes. Haynes, yep. Seems to be interchangeable. Some of it is Charlotte Eliza, the other one, some of the other way around. Yeah. So it just sort of depends on which record it is. But and the, yeah. some, of the, some of the families record her as Lottie, L O T T I. Yes, which is a common shortening of yeah. Charlotte. I found a reference to her then, the first reference uh, that I believe exists is a um, an absconded child reference listed by her father. It's in the police. Yep. And it's about 1895, which puts her at about 14 or 15. And it says, yep. now this is the, you tell me why this is fascinating. It says she's five foot two. Yes. Why is that? Yes. Go on. Because uh, that's about the height Squizzy was, wasn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> when he was full grown. <laughs> now imagining, it's a, that's the middle of that depression where people just didn't eat as a hobby. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she grew much more. She might have been an inch taller after 14, but... Generally speaking, she's probably about the same height as Squizzy. So that, that would be yes. her. What I also found very recently, this isn't included in the first edition of Squizzy, the book, is I found a, a reference to Dolly Gray arriving at um, the Melbourne Hospital in about 1914, 
And it's two years after she's moved to her little Lonsdale Street residence. Yep. And she's presenting there with a bullet wound to the head. <laughs> she's, able yes. to tell, she's able to talk. So it's not, I keep saying to myself, why were bullet wounds so ineffective through the whole vendetta? I'll look at that in a second. Um, but she says, this is an era when <coughs> the media will report anything. They will report anything from a furious gallop down the street to you name it, they will write an article about it. But all of a sudden, you've got a woman shot in the head and saying, I did it myself. And even the police said to the journalist, no, we don't think she did. And they didn't write anything else about it. One article, the whole, what, what, what makes you think they did? They, they gave it such little airplay? I, I think it's that whole thing. and it, it, It's like, was she interesting enough to make a story up about? And, you know, I think things we forget these days, to, to us today, guns are not common. So anything that that's, you know, somebody shot, they're stabbed, whatever, it's not a common thing. But you go back 100 years and they're all quite used to blood and gore, for want of a better word. Um, you know, everybody had a gun. Everybody, you know, they were, were slaughtering their own meat. Um, so it wasn't... It wasn't the, uh, the the sort of the impact that it perhaps has on us today. Uh, it wouldn't have had the same impact back then, I don't think. And I think it was the same, almost the same with mortality in that too, because death was around the corner all the time. You know, infant mortality is incredibly afraid. high. I just wondered, well, I wondered two things. If it's yeah. Squeezie that shot her, I reckon it is Squeezie that shot her. Um, Look, there's... There's another because like, there's I know there's another one. There was actually another one, um, and I can't remember the lady's name. Sorry, it's been a while since I've looked at it. But it was to do with the Bruins, uh, and it was Norman Bruins' um, partner who was also a prostitute. I want to say Molly, but I can't. I don't don't hold me to that. Absolutely, I can't remember there was her name a Molly completely. There wasn't absolutely. Uh, but there was a similar thing uh, where she was shot um, as well, and that, and it was suspected to be by by Norman, but they never followed up on it either. So, you know, is it this this criminal underworld element and is there, you know, the police a little bit, okay, we're just going to wait for the, the, the big thing to come that's not easy. Are journalists afraid of these kinds of clowns? Are journalists genuinely... Well, are, are they being paid off? Right, okay. You know, are and they, are the they in, time, in cahoots with? And is that the first time yeah. you're aware of the Bruns or Brun? You say Brun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, don't, don't hold me to pronunciations. I'm okay. hopeless at pronunciations. Right. <laughs> So when we say Norman Brun, to uh, to give you a background, we're talking about the guy who was the husband of Tilly Devine of the Razor Gang fame in Darlinghurst in Sydney. Yes. Is that the first overlap you see of, or the only overlap you see of the Bruns and Squizzy Taylor? Um, I don't know that I've really compared them, to be honest. Now, I've done, as I know, you know, I was showing you the, the stuff that I've done on the Bruns. Uh, at Geelong because we actually had, um, I think we had four of the brothers had come through the jail at some point all in. How many in total? Uh, I, I think there was the four brothers that came through. I've got a feeling the father, Oscar, also went through, but they're actually born and bred in Geelong, which is why I find, I always love it when I find the local boys that are, um, that rise to, rise to fame, even if he's on the ill fame, maybe not not fame. Um, and Percy Ramage was another one of those, which we know was part of Squizzy's crew uh, further down the track. He's also a Geelong boy who spent, spent a lot of time at Geelong Jail as well. Uh, and... Yeah, I just find it fascinating with some of these things. But the other thing I found fascinating, which I actually haven't done with Squizzy, but I know I did with the Bruins, is that some of the descendants of the Bruins are still in the criminal underworld today. Wow. So 
um, you look at uh, the four brothers who are both in Barwon for, I think, no, one might be out now. I can't remember. It's been a while since I looked. But they're actually the grandsons of, um, of Norman Bruin. Uh, so there's actually that. And they're not the only ones. I can't remember the other family. There's a two or three families I'd looked at. And because I like doing family history research, and I'd actually trace the families. And there is a number of connections with sort of today level um, underworld. Uh, if I want to be a better word, back to that 1920s generation of perhaps being related to and even earlier than that. Now, the other thing that I'd found with Squizzy, which I don't think you knew, uh, was that Squizzy's grandfather was a police officer, which I find interesting. There's not, there's not much, you know, which side are you on, black and white? You know, yeah. which side do we go on? So his, um, his grandfather was, was a police officer in Bendigo. Uh, which I found, yeah, I always find it fascinating when there's that history of, um, of, you know, that there's, whether they're criminal or, and I think, I just can't remember who else I found, but I think there's one I found, which is the other way. They were the grandson of a, a criminal, but they'd be, they were a police officer. So yeah. I actually find it really interesting that there's, there's, there's a very fine line there between, um, you know, yeah. wrong and right, perhaps. <laughs> not only was writing so, the biography, how mortified just, without knowing he was a policeman, but how mortified his grandfather must have been to have lived through watching his, so not just a squeezy, but also. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, to be honest, Um, reading through it. And again, I'm going back a couple of years now since I've had a look at this stuff. Um, But, you know, with Squeezy's father dying so early, I often wonder how how much the grandfather had to do with the family. Um, And, but some of the reports um that uh that squizzy's uh grandfather who was i'm just trying to remember his name i think it was isaiah um taylor he was um yeah there's there's a really fine line there sometimes between you know absolutely um well i I have to say that this has been a mind-blowing exercise for me and i i can't tell you how much how long and hard i looked for the dolly gray link but we have another podcast coming up with Deb in it. We're going to be talking about another crook that I have looked long and hard for. Um, but at this point, I'm going to thank Deb for coming my way and having a chat on this podcast. I'm not sure if you're still there, Deb. I... Yep, cool. So yes, I have to say, uh, we had a little bit of an interruption there, and I'm not, not sure what we'll, what you will be listening to. Um, it jumped around, <laughs> dropped my... my um, my device that was giving me the internet and it turned the internet off. So now we're back and we are now. <laughs> and so this is the last part of that interview with uh, Robinson. Now, Deb, I've got to say also, I was blown away by how amazing the old Geelong prison museum is. It is as a museum, it's spectacular, but it's also got that real earthiness that a lot of attractions seem to lose very quickly. They, they tend to uh, over polish what it was, and you've got a great combination at the, the the jail museum of exhibits, but also very touch and feel living in the in the prison. It, I've never been that close. I've been to the old Melbourne jail. I've been to the Ararat prison, a couple, you know, the Perth uh, Fremantle. I've been to as well. But I really have to say, well done to you. Can you tell me a bit about your experience in? Oh, thank you. 
Yeah, so, well, the jail, I'll just give people a bit of background if they don't know about the Geelong Jail. Uh, it's one of the 12 colonial prisons that was built uh, in Victoria based on the Pentonville system, uh, which was a system that was more about punishment rather than reformation of prisoners. So it was silence, it was separation, it was very, very harsh, which is what the early penal days were about. Um, so it opened in 1853, started being built in about 1849, um, the first money came through in 1848. So the interesting thing with that is it's before the separation of Victoria from New South Wales, which makes it really interesting to find any early records because they're in New South Wales somewhere and they're not indexed. Right. So that's on my bucket list. One day I have to go up to Sydney and troll for records to find early stuff. Uh, so, but when it opened in 1853, uh, it replaced the South Geelong Jail, which was a our previous jail here. Uh, and it was a very small, very uh, four slab huts at the time. Uh, and then it was re replaced with this bluestone uh, building. So the first prisoners moved in 1853, but it wasn't completed until 1864. So it was built in stages over that time. Uh, just, you know, sort of different areas were, were done at different times. Uh, it's been used for a number of different roles. So, of course, we, we know that we had male prisoners there, but we also had females. Uh, so women prisoners were there up until about 1900 when there was a change in the system and that after that all female prisoners went to Melbourne to Pentridge or to the Coburg, uh, Coburg prison, as they called it. Uh, what a lot of people don't realise that at one point in the 1860s, we actually had a girls' school down one end uh, and then we had still had the male and female prisoners down the other end. Now, if you've ever been to the jail, you know how close, you know, cold and, and, and horrible it is. Uh, not the place for young kids, uh, especially young girls aged between 3 and 16. Uh, and that's where they were bought because the, the orphanages were overflowing with people going to the goldfields and seeking their fortunes. And of course, you know, 1860s, there's no social welfare. So there's no backup system. If you've got no money, you're on the streets. And that's what a lot of these kids were. So there was an 1864 law that was brought in that um, made uh, it able for the magistrates to be able to charge the children themselves with being neglected. And that was how they were able to be put into the system. Uh, so it's, it's actually quite heartbreaking seeing some of the, the, the children being brought up before the courts. The youngest Absolutely. prisoner I know that we had at the jail was just two. And that That's was a prisoner. We were prisoner doing in your own right. I think we were so, doing a whole just on the jail. I, I, I would find that. <laughs> I can talk for hours about the jail. <laughs> no, absolutely. And you're on social media. What's I can talk for hours about, about anything history. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So that's, podcast. Sorry? Your own podcast. What's that called? It's called Locked Up With History. So if you want to hear any more about the jail and some of the murder, I'm just starting to get into all the juicy murders I'm doing now. Um, so I've only started earlier this year, so it's more of a bit of a... Um, a plaything for me as as I, I physically you know for I've, it's no secret with me I have MS uh, and as I get less able to function mobility wise um, I'm sort of at home a bit more but I have all these thoughts and 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 all my my research of thirty odd years it's all stuck in my head and people seem to like listening to me for some strange reason so <laughs> <laughs> I could, I could do it all day I tell you what I want to thank so you so I've, I've gone into doing a podcast so people can actually listen to me so. Um, it's getting all my, my stories out of my head. Man, the years of research that have, I, I don't know how you re, how you retain it all, but you are you're able to just re reproduce it so. Incredibly. My my family call me the queen of useless information. I 
can pull on that. And and yeah, you know, as as you saw the other day with me, I can I can tend to just go, oh yeah, blah 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 about this I've, one. I've uh, I've been able to put some of the the footage up from our meeting, and that's all I've seen. And that yeah, so it's, it's actually been it's people have seemed to be receiving it really well, which is fantastic. Yeah, so check out so, the yeah. of time on YouTube as well. Um, and yep. uh, I will let you talk history at me as a perfectly innocent victim another time. And thank you, <laughs> Deb, for coming by and being part no of the podcast. And we'll talk to you another time. <laughs>